Good morning. So good to see all your faces this morning. Um, it's been a it's been a weird couple of weeks for me. I started off uh, this week gearing up to go to Abilene to interview interns. Uh, John Paul and I drove out Tuesday morning. We left the house and. Got over to Abilene. I had three interviews that day, grand totaling an hour. So we drove six to do one hour. You would think we could use something like Skype at this point, right? Um, But we needed to do those face-to-face interviews. Ran into some of our students that have graduated from here. And it it was a great day from that stance. Right when I get to Abilene, my wife shoots me a picture. And it's of my daughter who's dealing with croup at this point. And croup's a thing that, ha- I mean, if you've never dealt with croup, awesome. But you probably have. It's a pretty common thing to have happen. In fact, I didn't know this, but there's two different types. There's one that you just kind of get and your, your, your throat just kind of gets a little tighter. And then there's another type that's viral. And the viral one is like any other virus. It's seven to ten days. Well, long story short, uh, my wife ended up having to call an ambulance to come out because my daughter's hands were turning blue, her feet were turning blue, she wasn't breathing well, everything was kind of closing up, she ended up having to go to the urgent care, get steroids. I'm in Abilene, just for a day. I find it so hard to just be in Abilene for that day. I found it really hard to, to write this sermon. In fact, I agreed to write this sermon and be here today to speak to you last week, not realizing it was this week that I would be preaching. I told Ross, hey, it's the holiday season. I need to cover a couple sermons for you, give you a break. And he said, okay, what would you like to do? I said, I'd like to do maybe the 17th on our Go Denton weekend, which is next weekend. I could do some reflections on what we've been doing. This guy says, no, I really want to do that. How about you get the 10th? And I was like, okay, I can do the 10th, not realizing that was less than 10 days away. Had I known that, I would not be here today. I found myself so highly distracted lately, so difficult to focus. Three little kids running around, kids six, hard to be present with them. And then, you know, I have this habit, this kind of ritual that I do in November of every year where I put up my Christmas lights. Anybody else do this? Right? Y'all, some of y'all wait till December and y'all are fools. And I'm going to tell you why you're fools, because in November, you're guaranteed at least one good weather day on a weekend. And I was always the envy of the neighborhood that I I just moved out of because I would put up my lights on that one good day. I won't turn them on yet, but I put them up. And guess when that day on a weekend was for this month? Yesterday. I had planned on it being yesterday, and it turned out yesterday was the day. But i got to preach a sermon today. So I found myself up, and we just moved, and now we're in a two-story house. And, and I hang my lights because I'm that guy. And I climbed up on the, the, the roof of the house I've never been up on before, and then I got up to the second story of the roof of that house. And then I got all the way down to the front of the house, right where the gutter meets, where there's a plug right underneath the soffit that's kind of around here. And I thought, now how am I going to get to this soffit plug that's 23 feet up off the ground? I don't have a ladder big enough, so I'm just going to go up there, lay down on the roof, and reach over. I know, right? 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 My mom wasn't here this weekend to say that. But my neighbor, Greg, who's brand new, just kind of looks up at me and says, you know, I had a buddy die doing that. Thanks, Greg. 
heart's pounding, trying to get it, if I can't get it plugged in. And uh, I, I, just, I just found myself laid out on the top of this roof, face down, looking at the ground, thinking to myself, I have a, to preach a sermon tomorrow. <laughs> and, and, and I may have broken ribs, back, neck, something. Am I being a good steward at the moment? And I started grappling with this, right? I need to get down off this roof. But I need to hang my lights. Needless to say, they got hung up. But multiple people came by the house throughout the day, and every one of them kept saying, don't kill yourself. And I just thought, what, what's going on? Like, I, well, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. They're probably known. They got something right here on this. You know, maybe I shouldn't be up here doing this right now. But I say that to say this, I have been extremely distracted the past month. It's been so hard for me to stay focused. And I, I don't think I'm the only one. I think we all have our things that get us off mission. And we find it so hard to stay on mission. Now that's your first blank on your bullet thing. I don't do fill in the blanks. This is another new thing I decided this week to try. So it may fail. I may not cover them all because I don't know how you can be this rigid in a sermon. But I'm going to attempt to be this rigid in a sermon. But I may miss something. So I'm going to give myself some grace today. I hope you will too. But I have been all over the map. My brother got cancer this past month, was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. I've been thinking about him. He is the, the laughter of the family. He is my youngest brother. And he's the one that then the holidays is making the jokes and lightening the mood. My other brother's a jerk. And so he's got to offset him, right? I mean, he's just so rigid and this one's so fun. And now... Now he's the one calling me, and he called me on Thursday while I'm trying to write a sermon. He says, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to write a sermon. I was supposed to have it written on Monday, and then Tuesday came, and then Wednesday came, and it's Thursday, and I've got to have everything done by today. And so, what's up? And he goes, oh, I won't bother you. I said, no, what's up? And he goes, well, I'm just, and he starts sniffling, and I'm thinking, oh, gosh, you know, he's dealing with this cancer and this bag he's got to wear right now and all this pain. I'm thinking, man, I got, uh, I'll just, let's chat for a minute, bud. Let's talk. Let's sit kids. And then the church budget, which has been all over the map this past year with bills that have come in, $35,000 for AC units. And, you know, I'm supposed to be concerned about I'm, I'm not concerned about that, but it does occupy my brain from time to time. Teens dealing with hard things. There's just constant stuff going on to preoccupy my brain. Back in April... As we're moving into this new season as a church, into this focus on discipleship, and to really trying to make sure everything we do is about helping equip the saints for works of ministry. We're using our apostles, our prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for works of service, right? That's what we're supposed to be doing because that's what discipleship's all about. And when you really boil it down, it's teaching all of us how to love God and how to love others, for us to be that and right in the middle of that, doing both. We can't just love people and we can't just love God. We've got to figure out how to do both. And that has been so hard. And I remember back in April um, having a conversation and just kind of thinking to myself, like, I've got to be a disciple maker. If I'm going to ask everybody else to be disciple makers, I've got to be a disciple maker. And what's step one with making disciples? I've got to be discipled. 
I don't have any of my mentors around anymore. I don't have anybody that I've asked to pour into me. But as a disciple, you have to have a mentor. What am I going to do? And I remember having this conversation with either Bob or Brandon or somebody else that was in the office at this point. And I walked out of that conversation. I walked into my office. I opened my email, and there was an email from a guy named Stephen Carazel. Most of y'all don't know him. Some of you do. He used to work at this church when I first came back uh, here back in 2006. And this email just simply said this. I'm starting a discipleship cohort where we learn how to be disciples. Do you want to be involved? No. Uh, But I kind of feel like I got to. Because I've asked other people to be disciple makers. I need to be a disciple maker. i got to be discipled. So, yes. What does it mean? What does it look like? And I emailed him back, and we started conversations in, in May as though I didn't need anything else to add to my schedule for the summer. I started becoming involved in a discipleship cohort where I talk with other ministers from around the world, even into Canada, I mean around the country, even into Canada, from Tennessee, Arizona, uh, Southwest Texas, uh, New Jersey, um, and we pour into each other, we pray together, we reflect on scripture, but we talk about what it means to be leaders in churches, what it means to be pastors and ministers in churches, and it has been such a horrible thing to be a part of. I don't like doing things at 8.15 on a Monday morning when I've got kids that got to get to school, staff meeting that I've got to run. It is the worst possible time to do something, homework that was supposed to be done for me. It has been so horribly difficult, yet so good for me to submit to mentoring. And I can't tell you how big of a blessing it is, but it has brought up one thing in me that you guys all need to know. There is only one word in the New Testament that scares me, and it ain't hell. Hell doesn't scare me. I'm not worried about hell. I'm not going to have to live in hell. I'm not going to hell, amen? But there is one word that scares the out of me, and it's evangelism. I'm going to be honest, guys. I avoid evangelism like it is croup like it is the plague, like it is the flu. If I can get out of it, I'm going to get out of it. I don't like doing it. It scares me to death. I don't mind sitting in with a couple who's just had an affair. I don't mind sitting down with a teen who's about to go to prison, sitting across the seat from somebody who just got convicted of rape or, or anything else that you can imagine that would be horribly difficult in life. That doesn't scare me one bit. I've sat across from people who've committed murder. I've sat across from people who've done heinous things. It doesn't bother me. That didn't scare me. But evangelism? I grew up in the Church of Christ. We did a week care program. We went knocking doors when I was a kid. Five people were baptized from knocking 12,000 doors. Five people that never came to church more than a couple of Sundays because... We weren't interested in changing ourselves. We were only interested in putting people in the water. 
Evangelism is something foreign to me. In fact, I was really good at converting other Christians to the real Christianity, if you know what I mean, right? Converting the Methodists to Church of Christ or the Baptists because of their pianos and they're going to. I was real good at the Catholics were a cakewalk, man. I could open up a Bible and show them where they were wrong all day. But talking to somebody about the real Jesus, the real gospel message, not the religious one that I had grown up being taught was such a foreign concept to me. And it has remained a foreign concept to me. And I'm scared of it. I'm, I'm scared of it. Tell you a story about me and Bob the other day as we get going in this a little bit farther. But as a part of this discipleship cohort, I realized that if I'm going to make disciples, I first have to be discipled. And God sent me a mentor when I asked Him to send me a mentor, and He did it instantaneously. And as we were going through this discipleship cohort process, I began to look ahead at each field of study and realize, man, I'm really excited about the counseling one and the church systems one and the planning out how you do life week in and week out and the spiritual disciplines one. And then I saw this one down on the very end called evangelism. And I got, oh, man, I had to figure out how to get out of this thing before that gets here. Because I don't really want to do evangelism. But my cohort nevertheless came around to it. And two weeks ago, as we were planning this go didn't thing, the evangelism spot in my discipleship cohort rolled around and we began to read out of this passage. It's Luke chapter 10. It's a passage that when I first moved here, this church reflected on for a solid year. Looking at Jesus sending out the 70. And I want to point a couple of things out to you as we, we talk through this a little bit here that has begun to help lessen my anxiety about evangelism, although it is still there. But I want you to read along with me here. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. And after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them out on ahead of him. Now, he pulled 70 out of about 5,000. You see, because Jesus was okay having some church consumers around him. He was okay having some people that just liked to hear what he had to say, but not actually change anything in their lives or, or get something that would make them feel better temporarily and follow him around hoping they would get to witness him doing something else that would be spectacular. He was somewhat okay with that. He was okay with that consumerism that existed then, and he would probably be somewhat okay with the consumerism that exists now. You are all church consumers. I'm a church consumer. If you go to a sermon like you are today to hear what that person has to say, you're consuming. If you go to a Bible class that you never teach, never lead, never do anything in, you're a consumer. If you come to an activity here like a Wednesday night meal just to eat what's being served, but you never help serve or never help do anything, you are a? That's right. You all do it. I do it from time to time. Hopefully that's not all you do. And Jesus put out a call and 70 people showed up. That ain't what happened. We all know that ain't true because if I asked you, 70 people wouldn't show up. He went around and said, you, come here. You, come here. And he got to 35 pairs. Guarantee you that's how he did it because he understands church people. Hey, we need your help. Ah, somebody else will do that. But if you point and tap, everybody come, right? That's called 70. And this is what he said. 
Verse two, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers to his harvest. Go on your way. See, I'm sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals. Greet no one. Don't get all tied up in all of the stuff that's going on. Stay focused on the mission. Go. And whatever house you enter, whatever place you go, whatever town you land in, first say this, peace to this house. And if the person of peace is in there, if anyone is in there who shares in this peace, your peace will rest on that person. Now, I want to pause you for just a second. What Jesus is saying is, go, prepare a place for me when I come. But I want you to know I've already sent the Spirit ahead to prepare a place for you to go when you get there. He's already created this person of peace out there so that when you go, you are following the Spirit who's already present there, setting people up for Jesus. He sends them out to seek out a person of peace. Someone God is already working within. This is a little different kind of evangelism than what I grew up with. It's a little different thinking than I think what I've kind of thought before. What else is this person of peace like? Well, if you look at the life of Christ and you look at Paul who follows that up, what you begin to do is you begin to notice a few things about these people of peace. And thing number one is that God's already working in them. Thing number two is that they are already well-known. Taking this person as an example here. This is out of Mark chapter 5. Jesus went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when he got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore his chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. The story goes on to say that Jesus removes the unclean spirits from him, casts them into some pigs, and pigs go off and die. And as we loop them back around to the end of the story, we run into this. In verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat to leave this area, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Now, this is the case of every person who's been touched by Jesus. Every person that has been unclean who's been touched by Jesus. Every person of peace that has ever existed, this is the case. They go, thank you, Jesus. Can I stay with you? And sometimes Jesus says no. Verse 19, Jesus did not let him stay, but said, Go to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus has done for him. And that last little piece, I'm so glad Mark left it in there. And all the people were amazed. The garrison demoniac was a person of peace. Not the person of peace that you may be thinking, but that's what he was. And in quite honesty, he's just like you and me. See, you don't realize this, but you were once and maybe still are a person of peace to someone who Jesus sent.
You are a known person, somebody God was already working in when you heard the gospel. Now, for many of you, that was when you were a child. For some of you, it's in your adult life. God is working on you with his spirit, and someone comes to you and says a word of peace from the true source of peace, Jesus Christ, and it hits you. And you begin to share that story with those around you. The Greek term is your oikos, your family, your friends, the, the people around you that you have. And Jesus, when he identifies that you're a person of peace, when he identified that I was a person of peace, he says, you cannot stay with me. You must go. I send you out like sheep among wolves. A person of peace is someone who is known. A person of peace is someone who is influential and has a web of relationships. Take, for instance, this story from Paul out of Acts chapter 16. Paul and his companions, this is verse 6, traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of my Asia, they tried to enter Bethany, but the Spirit of Jesus would not let them. So they passed my Asia and went to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and begging him, come to Macedonia, help us. And after Paul had seen this vision, he got ready at once to leave Macedonia concluding that God had called them to preach the gospel there. From Troas, we put out to the sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day, Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city in the district of Macedonia. We stayed there several days, and on the Sabbath day, on the day of rest, on the day when we're supposed to be people of peace and not do anything at all, this is what says happened. They went outside the city gate to the river where they expected to find a place of prayer. And when they sat down, they began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman who was originally from Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple. She's there living in Philippi. She was already a worshiper of God. She doesn't know Jesus yet. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Philippi. Philippi is the receiver of the letter to the church of the Philippians. The church that supported Paul the most throughout his missionary journeys, the one that brought him the most joy, the one that he would write letters to and they would send stuff to him, all started from Lydia, a person of peace, and not the person you or I might think of, but a dealer in purple, an influential, a powerful woman, maybe, or married to a powerful man, although his name's never mentioned who convinces her whole house to follow God and there establishes a church in Philippi. All because Paul had a vision from a man to go to Macedonia. A person of peace is someone who is influential and has a web of relationships. Why do I tell you all of this today? It's simple. You were that person. The question is, are you that person? The question is, am I that person? 
And as I'm going through this cohort, being mentored, being challenged to do something that, quite honestly, I hate doing. I mean, I'll be honest with you guys. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, when did we meet for the meeting? Three weeks ago, I guess, give or take, for this go. So we, I go over to the campus center to meet Brandon and Bob to talk about Go Denton, which is just like going to the dentist or something for me. Like, I don't want to go meet and talk about evangelism. I don't like evangelism. Evangelism scares me. I'm afraid of it. There's people that are really good at it, Brandon and Bob. They can do it. I'll do something else. But I go nevertheless. And I go early to this meeting because it's free lunch day. I wasn't going to eat any lunch, but I thought I'll hang out with some college students, have a conversation. And I get there, and it's almost like God's playing a practical joke on me, right? So I get there, and they've decided they're going to go out and do evangelism on the campus. It's stupid cold outside and raining. And it's UNT campus. There isn't. It's like they're going walking under porticos or something. I mean, they're going out like bundled up, like, hey, let's go do it. And I'm like, y'all are crazy. I'll tell you what, I'll just stay here and watch the building. Let me chat with some college students as they come in and out. Y'all go ahead. And so they began to pray together as a team. Daniel was a part of that team, a few others. And they, as they're praying, I'm sitting at a table much like this one, and I'm just sitting here, and I'm listening to the prayer, and I just find myself just going, man, I'm such a wuss. Why, why can't, it's evangelism. Like, you should be able to do this. Like, you're a, you're a pastor, you minister of church. This is your job. Like, ah, it's not my job. I'm really more of this or that. I start warring with myself internally. And I finally just said, God, if you want me to do something evangelistic today, you better send somebody through that door. <laughs> they left. And about 15 minutes later, to ruin my game on my phone... God sent somebody through that door. And somebody opens the door, and I kind of look out, and they look kind of young, and they look over at me. And this is the words. I'm hungry. You got anything to eat? And it was like God just kind of smacked me at that moment. Because the passage that came to my mind as that guy spoke is Matthew 25. And in Matthew 25, you see, this is one of those fallacies I think we inadvertently preach sometimes, right? You were saved by grace. You were not saved by grace. You were saved by Jesus. Jesus is grace. Not just grace. Jesus is grace. And Jesus gets to be the judge. And Jesus has already told us what he's going to do and how he's going to judge. Ross talked about a little bit in his sermon with the parable of the talents. The one right after that's the parable of the bridesmaids. And then right after that's Matthew 25. And here's what he says. He says, in the end, the, the king will come. The prince will come in all of his glory. He will sit on his throne surrounded by his angels. And he will separate the people like a great shepherd does with his flock. On the left, he will put the sheep. And on the right, he will put the goats. Jesus will make a decision about grace. And how's he going to do that? Again, I'm sitting at this table listening to this guy ask me this question, and this verse comes to mind. I'm thinking about evangelism. I don't even know I'm preaching yet. And one of the least of these asked for food. When a stranger needs hospitality, when a person needs clothing, when a prisoner needs someone to visit, when a sick person 
need somebody to bless them in the hospital. When, when, you, when you did that for those people, you did that for me. Come to the place I've prepared for you. But when you didn't do that for the least of these, sorry, there's a place prepared, not for you. It was never designed for you. It was designed for the devil and his demons, but you're going to go there. And I remember this coming through my head as I sat there and thought, now, not all of that went through there. It was basically just that question in Matthew 25, and my brain went, it's free lunch day, buddy. Yeah, have a seat. I'm going to warm you up some food. The food's provided. All I've got to do is just hand it over. I prayed the prayer, and I knew God would answer the prayer, oh, but he did. And this guy sitting in front of me, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I don't know how to do evangelism with people. I know how to talk to people about the bad sins they've committed and how to change their life. Wait, that's evangelism, huh? I guess maybe I, 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 I don't know. still feels weird. still feels weird. still difficult, still awkward. I heated the guy up some food, and I set it down, and I just began to ask him about his life and chat with him while he's wolfing down this food. And I got to a point where I was like, man, I just don't know what to do now, and Bob walked in. Yes! And Bob looks over and goes, hey, who are you? I'm Bob. And then I whisked out. I chickened out. I left. Went to the kitchen. Clean dishes. Started picking up food. Started cleaning up the campus center. Just needed stuff. Wasn't the thing I needed to be doing. But I did. I let Bob do his thing. That's what I told myself. I'm in a discipleship cohort where my goal that week was supposed to be to sit down with somebody. And God gave me it, God prepared the person, God sent the person, the person was already hungry for something, God gave me the opportunity, and in my head at least I gave him some food, but that wasn't the food he was really seeking. And I don't know whatever happened with that, it's not my job. In fact, I want to point out something to you in that passage out of Luke chapter 10, when you get to the very end of those disciples, it says this, it says, even though they were sent out like sheep among wolves, even though they were sent into a place where they could be killed. Even though the Holy Spirit had prepared a person for them and all they had to do was keep saying the word peace until somebody said it back and stay with that person and let that person's influence, that person of peace, spread the message out about the coming of the Christ. It says this. It says when they came back, they came back full of something so elusive, so coveted, so so sought after in our culture, in their culture, and in every other culture that's ever been. They came back with something so small that you can't go find if you want to find it. But so massive that it has the ability to impact people for years. They came back with joy. A person of peace. It was you once. Maybe it's you today. It was me once. I was in college doing all sorts of stuff that's not good. Coming out of high school. And I remember a guy walking up to me. His name was Brian. 
And I kind of knew who Brian was. I had seen him around the little junior college campus before. I didn't really know who he was. He's one of those Baptists. He needed conversion. And Brian comes up to me, and we start chatting about this and that, and finally we've got some other connections with that. And then he says this. I mean, I'd forgotten about this until this morning in first service when I was sharing this story. Totally had never thought about it until this morning in first service. He comes up to me and he says this. He goes, hey, I'm starting a Bible study for college students. Why don't you help me lead it? He saw me as a person of peace. Going down a bad road. Kind of like Jesus did with the demoniac. Somebody who got caught up in sin, caught up in in the demons of life, caught up in the busyness of life, had been distracted from the mission at one point, but we could bring in a little healing. It was 21 years ago. And if you would have told me then that I'm going to be doing this today, I would have said, you're crazy. And here I am. Hopefully still a person of peace. But the questions: are you going to be that person of peace? Are you going to do what God has asked of us to do? Are you going to show that love to the least of these when they approach you? Are you going to go out and find that person of peace? If our church was full of people of peace, we would have tripled, doubled, and quadrupled, right? Because people of peace find people of peace. It's all we have to do. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. But I imagine, and I don't say this is the pot calling the kettle black. I know. I don't like it either. But I have no choice because of where God's been leading me and my desire to follow God, my heart to want to be more and more like Jesus. I'm going to go next week and be trained. And I'm going to go out and I may stink at it. I may not be the best person for it. I may not fully understand how to do it. And maybe God's going to say, but you tried like the guys, the talents. And I'm going to use that to double it. I'm going to use that somewhere. You may not get to see it in the moment. But you won't be found to be like one of the bridesmaids who didn't plan for the bridegroom. And you won't be found wanting. God has called you. He has called us. He has called me. And I don't know your specific calling. You do. I know mine. And mine right now is that look at the thing that I'm afraid of most. And allow God to challenge me in it so that I can find people of peace in my life. We're going to be singing in just a minute. We're going to be celebrating what God has done for us. And this morning, as we stop this sermon and move into a time of singing, here's the thought that I want in your brain. There was once joy in you. Don't let the world steal it by distracting you from your mission. In your pursuit of happiness, you will lose your joy. Find your joy. And it can only be found in Jesus. This weekend may not be an opportunity for you, but God's going to knock on your door of your heart. And all he wants to give is joy. 
And all he wants you to do is participate with his spirit and with his son in the capturing of this world for peace. If you need somebody to pray with you about that, elders will be up here, I'll be up here. If you need somebody to talk with you through that, if you're ready to pledge to come and be with us next weekend, great. There's sign-up forms out here in the lobby where you can sign up and sign waivers because being a Christian in most of the world is risky business. I want you to come and participate. Get out of your comfort zone. And if you can't, that's okay. Don't feel guilty about that. But you need to give to this church in some capacity. For no other reason I tell you this, than I want you, like Paul wanted his church in Philippi, to be a people of grace and hope and mercy and love. And that's to tell them you've got to participate. You can't just consume all the time. Plug in, join. If you can't, give your money, give your stuff to whoever is in need. Be a blessing. And if you need prayers for your heart on that, by all means, let us pray with you, not for you, because you need to pray with our hearts too. Amen? Let's all stand. And let's have some joy in God.